One thing I say to my students is, you can be the best investor in the world, but if people don't know that or understand that, you'll lose business to someone with charisma over intelligence, you know, nine out of 10 times. So, you know, being empathetic, being relatable, being someone your clients want to interact with, super important. If you're just like smart and a good investor, you know, but can't communicate that, you'll be challenged. Welcome to the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital. Join us as we learn from pros who have helped thousands of investors live better lives. I'm Brian Moore, and I'll be chatting with some of the brightest minds in the financial advisory business, bringing you insights on practice management and investment research that works for advisors and their clients. Joining me today on this episode of the Active Advisor Podcast is my co-host, Brian Griffin, who is a fellow colleague of mine at Harbor Capital. Brian holds a CFP and is a regional investment consultant. Thanks for joining me today, Brian. Thanks for having me. Our guest for today's episode is Michael Collins, founder and CEO of WinCap Financial. Michael holds the CFA designation and is a wealth management advisor based in Boston. At WinCap Financial, Michael acts as financial advisor, portfolio manager, and fiduciary providing a tailored approach to meet the needs of each individual client. Welcome, Mike, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Brian and Brian. Thanks so much for having me today. So really appreciate you taking the time out and speaking with us today. Got to ask, you know, it seems like something has drawn all of us to this business. What is your first memory that you have related to money or investing? I was working for eBay Computers in like 2001, if you remember the computers with the cow logo on it and stuff. Oh, yeah. And I just remember, you know, at the time, the management there was just like going wild about these stock options. I think, you know, one of the managers like ended up getting his house paid off from like the stock options at the time. All those conversations got me interested in investing. I took my first tax return I got there and used it to open an E-Trade account and buy a few ETFs. Excellent. You're sort of a natural, Mike, in my opinion, teacher as We've gotten to know each other over the years. I've learned a lot from you. So it doesn't surprise me that you were asked to teach and that you continue doing so today. Do you think your experience there talking to students makes you a better advisor? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, it definitely forces me to keep in tune with stuff that's going on. I mean, it almost reinforces my existing job, you know, with my firm, where I'm educating people about topics that might pass them by areas of interest that they might be passionate about and just like showing them what I think is like the right way to view the world when you're looking at finance. And then, you know, investment ideas too have been from the classroom. I don't know if it was 2017 or 2018. And I just noticed like all these kids were wearing these like goofy croc shoes. For me, those were like so out of fashion. And I started talking to people and then I did more research about the company it ended up leading to like a, a viable idea. And even most recently, and again, you know, just an FYI, anything I say here is not a recommendation for you personally to buy. Deckers, which owns Uggs and Hoka shoes, which I'm not familiar with, but apparently they're gaining in a ton of popularity. And I wouldn't know that if I didn't have interaction with these younger people, because, you know, they're usually ahead on some of these trends. That's so true. I think it definitely kind of keeps you in tune to a lot of what's happening out there and the social media presence is, I guess, drawing and pushing out there in popularity. So I definitely can see the transition to how that's going to help make you a better advisor. Did any of that help you decide to start your own financial advisory firm or or what was the exact transition to help you kind of, you know, the impetus to move in that direction? Yeah, I think, you know, part of it was driven by 
some financial transactions that went on at my prior firm. And then the pandemic hit. And then, you know, I realized I was effectively bringing in the assets, managing the money and the relationship. And, you know, during the pandemic, it opened my eyes that the firm, while they were great, were really providing me software and office space. Because, you know, it was almost like everyone in the office was more or less an independent agent. So I was like, can I do this on my own? And I started researching, looking to potentially, you know, maybe start my own brand and DBA under an existing firm. And, you know, for the audience that doesn't know what the DBA is, you can basically fold into another firm and you still have your own independent business, but, you know, your compliance and technology is covered by a larger firm. And then in my search, I didn't really come across like the sweet spot of either having like a good payout or good technology. It was kind of one or the other. And then, you know, I started having preliminary conversations with Schwab and Fidelity. They wouldn't have an official conversation with me until I quit, but just like what that would look like. And I thought that the end client almost cares more about the custodian where you kind of store your client's assets than they do your own brand. So, you know, I decided to take the leap in 2021 you know, which was a little bit scary, you know, when you leave and your clients ask you like, hey, can we work with you? And they want to follow you. Sounds great. But, you know, it takes about 60 days to like go from quitting until you're able to launch the firm because now the custodians will have a conversation with you until, you know, you're really ready and not still entangled with another firm. So that was a scary 60 days. And, you know, you have situations where people initially like, hey, I'm going to follow you. And when it got time to do it, you know, they didn't. And then there was another group of people who I had no expectation I would ever hear from again. And then, you know, now they're some of my best clients. You know, I didn't realize the relationship was as strong as it was. So I think, you know, I was managing close to 60 million when I left Cap Trust. And I think about 40 million chose to follow me. Very good. So, Mike, you hold the CFA charter, degree in economics, degree in finance. You teach investment classes. You're an investment guy. How much of WinCap's value proposition comes down to a differentiated investment approach? I think we lead with planning first because asking a retail customer to evaluate me as an investment manager is like asking me to evaluate three different mechanics. All I know is that my car works, but I couldn't tell you the A mechanic from the C mechanic. So I start off by solving problems that the client's going to understand. like. They're 62 years old. They have $2 million. They want to know how much they can spend in retirement with their spending goal and maybe, you know, philanthropy and estate planning goals. So start with that. But then, you know, moving past that, you know, I always focus a lot on the education, on the investment approach. Different clients have way different needs. So if it's warranted and someone is, you know, on the more sophisticated side, I'll spend more time going over my investment approach, but we're not doing anything too exotic, right? We're, you know, investing our clients in a portfolio of stocks and bonds in order to meet their financial goals. There are a couple of things that I think are different. You know, we do use individual stocks for about 80% of our clients where it's appropriate. We adopt a concept that I picked up when I was working at Northern Trust. It's the theory of having a bond runway of safety for your client's near-term spending. So the way we frame how safe or risky a client should be is really a function of 
what's your expected portfolio withdrawals over the next four to eight years? And somewhere between four to eight years of their future withdrawals should be allocated to fixed income. And, you know, outside of last year, bonds and stocks don't usually move in the same direction. So, you know, also within the bond portfolio, it will be fairly laddered. Like we'll use short-term bond funds to make sure the next 12 months of spending is captured in there. You know, more recently, we've started to use some money markets as well. But, you know, when I'm thinking about the fourth year of spending, you know, that can be in higher yield bonds or floating rate. And then, you know, spending in years two or three can sit in like a core bond fund. So that way, when a client needs cash flow, theoretically, we shouldn't be forced to sell something that's really fell out of bed. And if the market's really turbulent, then we can lean on bonds to provide that cash flow to clients. Oh, that's great. I like your approach to fixed income and having that cash on hand for your clients. Is there a consensus or widely held investment view today that you disagree with? Yeah, I mean, we've still been bullish on housing related stocks and have been fairly rewarded by that. You know, I think uh, part of the financial media seems to be wanting to like restate 2007, 2008 in terms of housing. But, you know, the dynamics and demographics are just totally different. Largest population in the U.S. is in their early 30s. That's prime age for household formation. Basically, the children of the baby boomers. And this is why, you know, you don't see prices dropping while, you know, rates have gone up. It's because there's a supply issue that's almost bigger than the demand issue. So, you know, that's keeping housing prices elevated. Additionally, you know, normally in any given year, about 10% of houses sold are new homes. Because of the supply shortage, you know, the only ones really selling homes are home builders. 30% of new homes in the last year sold were new homes. LGI Homes, which is an entry-level home builder, they're really interesting because they almost purely rely on government financing. They build their housing communities one hour outside of cities so they can take advantage of rural government loan programs where the buyer has to put no money down. And they don't have to take the credit risk because these are government loans. So they often advertise to like renters saying like, hey, you know, for no money down, you could like be paying the same amount moving into this house down the street. Now, you know, unfortunately, it's not feasible for their business to operate in Boston. You go like, you know, outside major cities in Florida, they operate there. And then if you've ever seen how they build houses, no one's laying bricks or like hammering nails anymore. It's almost like these new homes are Lego blocked together. So I was going to have a follow-up to that. Where are you most contrarian? Movie theaters. Dolby is technically a technology stock, and they'll benefit from the revamping of movie theaters. You know, Mm -hmm. in our view, the ones that are left are going to charge more. There's going to be less supply. The investment world has been concerned that, you know, this is the death of the movie theater because of streaming. I don't believe that to be the case. EPR, which is a REIT, they're a landlord for experimental properties. So what does that mean? You know, like 15% of their portfolio, I think approximately is they're the landlord for Topgolf, but about 40% of their portfolio is the landlord for movie theaters. So a little bit of a controversial position, but we think that's just a function of the divergence of opinions on where that market goes. You know, the worst of this movie theater closures is over, then, you know, we'll probably see the stock rebound and the yield come down. Dolby's interesting too, because, you know, they're effectively a licensing company. They do R&D, 
But, you know, if you and I invented a pair of speakers, like the thing we could do or headphones is get a Dolby certified, which effectively means we give Dolby a cut of every one of our sales for the product that we're making. That's cool. I wanted to shift gears a bit and talk about chat GPT, which is, you know, of course, a little bit of a touchy subject, but you were an early adopter of it. I remember you suggesting that I check it out years ago, like long before it was so in vogue. Do you use it in your business? If so, how do you use it? And how do you anticipate artificial intelligence in general being applied in the financial advisory space going forward? Yeah. So we were really fortunate. I just read a lot of part of the research process. I read a lot of technology blogs, came across ChatGPT, or it wasn't called ChatGPT then, but their previous product. Almost two years ago, I was able to get into their beta tests kind of through my academic credentials. So we've been using OpenAI's GPT stuff for close to two years. We've done a lot of experiment with it to see like what we think it can and can't do today. So, you know, today we're using it to save 80% of the time it takes to write investment content. We do a weekly blog as a touch point for clients and prospects. And normally something like that might take me 90 minutes a week to write. But the way we can do it now with AI, it's almost like I have a six-figure marketing person that is just doing all the work for me. And I put on a finishing touch. We tried a little experiment directly feeding data from FactSet and Yahoo Finance to effectively do an automated investment research. Wasn't as good as that. you know. So we don't think that's ready for prime time. But we are still looking at experimenting with ideas like that to drive efficiency. Because you know, when you're building an RIA, but the analogy I use, it's like instead of playing the violin, you're conducting the orchestra. So if you had one really good investment analyst, you could effectively scale them up and give them like the power of like five investment analysts because the amount of time they could save just putting down thoughts and ideas. So I think there's a ton of capability. I'm not as like ready yet to do automated replies and stuff like that, having an AI reply to my email just because the high touch nature of our work. We like to keep it personalized. But for our kind of regularly scheduled content, it's really helpful. The other area where I use it, Endicott College has like a publicist that links professors to journalists. If you ever see like a professor interviewed on the news, it's usually through one of these like school publicists that get them in touch. And I get like five inquiries a day for like media quotes. So I can like copy and paste the media quotes in there. Tell the AI my opinion. Like my opinion on the subject is X, Y, Z, respond to these questions with that opinion. And then it will respond with the answers to all those questions. Then I just proofread it to make sure it truly is in line with my view and then send it off. And again, normally I'd have to ignore a lot of those requests because it would just be too time consuming, but allows me to really speed up content delivery. Wow. So building on that, what are guys some of the other areas that you incorporate technology into the investment process and your day-to-day management of the business? And what lift do you think that gives you? So we use FactSet for portfolio analytics. You know, it's crucial. It's a super flexible program. All our portfolios are loaded up there in real time. We also outsource a third-party quant scoring system from empirical research, and that feeds into FactSet basically gives us the first part of our process, you know, does this stock look to be a buy or does it look to be a sell? So, you know, that's part of our risk management process as well. Clients appreciate that. I was fortunate where 
this technology was used at my prior firm, but they're just a regular company, nothing proprietary. So when I started my own firm, I was able to use the same process and techniques that I was using at my old firm in terms of stock selection. In addition to that, we use Black Diamond for client reporting. That automates a lot of the back office. You know, a decade ago, you'd have like five warm bodies doing performance. You know, now you can do it all with software. It makes it easier for a guy like me to start their own firm if I don't need to hire a back office because the software can take care of it. We're using Redtail for our CRM and eMoney for financial planning. There's two big players in financial planning, in my view, eMoney and then Money Guide Pro. And I think that wraps up, you know, most of the tech, right? We custody with Fidelity and Schwab and we use DocuSign. <laughs> That's really it. Nice. You just mentioned your prior firm and earlier you mentioned your days at Northern Trust. I know you've worked at several well-known asset management and advisory firms. And just wondering what lessons you took from your earliest days in this business that you've brought with you today to WinCap. Yeah. I mean, geez, I could give so many examples. Like, you know, I worked at Acadian Asset Management. I was able to get a job there in 2008, which was in hindsight, pretty remarkable. I enjoyed that job, but I was in also in a client reporting role. And I think given the state of the economy at the time, instead of like sitting in your seat for like two years and moving on, it seemed like you were sitting in your seat for four years before you were moving on, you know, because of the job market. Eventually, when I left Acadian, you know, I had made progress on the CFA and Northern Trust had interviewed me to go on to their ultra high net worth team. And that was in 2012. And I just learned a ton in that role because I came from institutional, even the ultra high net worth money, you know, at the time seemed small. Now that I'm on my own, I'm like, geez, a $30 million client is very big, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where the minimum at Northern Trust, I think was 20 million. So a lot of people had significant amounts of wealth. And that just taught me a ton about wealth management, stayed there for about four years and moved to Boston Advisors, which was later absorbed by Cap Trust. And I was supposed to inherit a book of business from someone when I worked there. In the process, the goalposts were always moving when it was going to come my way. So I just quickly realized that the biggest value I can add in my own career and also for my clients is to find the clients myself and bring in a book of business and not rely on someone else for my success. Definitely makes sense. And I think it kind of rings true in this business. You really do have to be humble be willing to learn, be willing to do a lot of different things, but at some point in time, kind of staying on your own feet. So you've had a great experience. You've worked at, you know, the client facing role, the institutional side, you know, really, if we look forward, what's on the horizon for you? You know, what is looking out over the next three to five years? What are you kind of focused on at WinCap? What are your goals or what would winning look like over this period? Yeah. So we're managing about 50 million in assets today, working with about 50 families, our portfolio is a little barbelled in terms of client size. I think in the next three to five years, we're on the path to 100 million and getting registered with the SEC and so at the state level. We believe that based on our growth projections, we're going to go from 50 to 100, you know, by 2025. But, you know, a phase two of our organization is looking for other advisors. So when I built the firm, I did it in mind with like, what would I want in an organization that I would want to work at? So we have the capacity to add new advisors, which is something, you know, we haven't done yet. We're in the middle of onboarding our first advisor, which is really exciting. And I think the value proposition on that side of the business is that we're offering advisors ownership of their book, you know, payouts above 80%. 
and access to our technology and infrastructure and compliance. And because we don't claim ownership, it also gives that advisor the freedom and flexibility to like, if they're not happy, they can leave and bolt on to someone else or start their own firm. You know, it's a little bit different of a model, but we think it's what's going to help us grow the fastest. We're going complete eat what you kill model, you know, for advisors. We posted our first LinkedIn job post last week to see if we get any real traction there and just seeing like what the market might be for advisors. I think that buying a book of business here in this environment is extremely expensive. You know, we're able to build a book of business through digital marketing at about 0.5x revenue. So, you know, we get paid back within six months on our investment in marketing. For every $5,000 we spend, we get a $10,000 a year reoccurring client. So, you know, I think that model that we have can be rolled out to any advisor. We just put them in the system. They'll be able to be successful. But, you know, the challenge is, is getting someone to transition from their kind of stable salary job to a job that maybe is perceived to be a little bit more risky where their success is you know, really on their back. So, you know, it'll be an interesting 12 months to see how the onboarding advisors go and, you know, how they grow as well as the firm. No, that's great. And wish you the best of luck, obviously. You know, we've all started out at some point in time along in this business, and we've learned a lot along the way. I think, you know, one of the great things about this business is you never stop learning. What is the skill that you believe an advisor starting out today, starting out on their journey, should focus on developing? Yeah, I mean, you have to be empathetic. One thing I say to my students is you can be the best investor in the world, but if people don't know that or understand that, you'll lose business to someone with charisma over intelligence, you know, nine out of 10 times. So, you know, being empathetic, being relatable, being someone your clients want to interact with is super important. If you're just like smart and a good investor, you know, but can't communicate that, you'll be challenged, right? So I think just being in tune with what your clients are looking for. And there's been plenty of times where we've had to pivot on like what we think the value proposition for a client is. And I think the role of empathy you know, plays a big part in that, whether it's changing their financial plan or altering their portfolio from stocks to ETFs. Nope, that's great. Going to go to the closing questions here. We at Harbor believe wholeheartedly in active management, but every financial professional has their own take. What's your philosophy and where does active matter most? Yeah, so you know, we definitely believe in active management. Our investment process within our individual US stock portfolio, which you know about 80% of our clients are in, is we go dividend neutral and neutral to the sectors as well to act as a risk constraint against our benchmark. You know, from there, we do a bottom-up look at the market. Our quant screen takes the Russell 3000 and turns it into about a viable universe of about 600 names. So we're really trying to drive efficiency, you know, even on the stock selection process. And then from there, we fill the sectors with Bible names that we find attractive, not only on the score basis, but, you know, the story. I pay a lot of attention to the peg ratio because I think it neutralizes a lot of super high PE ratios that could be attractive. And I think staying sector and dividend neutral in a past role I had, I was doing mutual fund manager evaluations. So, you know, going through that process, I got to talk to a lot of smart people who are active managers. And I noticed that the best ones in my work tended to make like less bets and neutralizing the value and growth or neutralizing the sectors 
seem to actually give you more opportunities to win and, you know, also less opportunities to fail too. You'll never be over your skis, you know, in one particular area. And it forces us to show discipline. You know, if the stock skyrockets, we're going to be overweight that sector because of our discipline, we're going to have to do some trimming. So it's that methodical process alongside what we think is quality stock selection is what's going to drive success. And our goal isn't to, you know, beat the market by 10%. It's more along the lines of, you know, our process should keep us within plus or minus 3% of our benchmark, hopefully on the upside. But, you know, you always have to be concerned about downside risk and selling discipline as well. Nope, completely understand. And obviously, it goes without saying, we wish you the best of luck, you and your clients. How can people find you? Do you have a social presence? I believe we mentioned you did kind of on your Instagram. How about WinCap? Yeah, WinCap on Instagram, it's WinCap Charts. We just post mostly educational content. I post stock charts, economic charts with my commentary. You can find WinCap Financial on LinkedIn. And then if you look up on uh, LinkedIn for me, Michael Collins, CFA. I believe I'm the first one that shows up when you search it that way. Otherwise, my name's pretty common. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're moving to what I believe to be kind of one of the best segments of our podcast. And it's called 60 Seconds with Michael Collins, or as I like to call it, the lightning round. Let me know when you're ready. Let's go. Okay. Nickname. Mike. Hobby. Video games. Favorite podcast and no pressure here. Hardcore history. Fenway Park or the Garden? Garden. Most used emoji in text messaging. Emoji with the angel head. Barry's boot camp or Orange Theory. Barry's boot camp. Hidden talent. Stock research. 6040 portfolio. A classic or a relic. Classic. Best lunch spot near your office. Family grasses. More important for advisors to be good listeners or good investors. Good listeners. Southie or South End. Southie. CNBC or Bloomberg. CNBC. Bloomberg terminal or fact set. Fact. Favorite Excel formula? The, the one where it sums up the numbers. Can't miss tourist destination in Boston. Uh, Ebon's. It's a restaurant. Advice for someone just starting to invest? Take it slow. Favorite way to get active? Yeah, go to the gym, stationary bike. I can multitask on that. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just getting started, the Active Advisor brought to you by Harbor Capital offers professional insights for the financial advisor community. Visit us at harborcapital.com to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to the Active Advisor on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on investment trends, tried and tested research methods, and what your industry peers are up to. From all of us at Harbor Capital, thanks for tuning in. And now for important disclosures. This material is for informational purposes and is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of 5th of May 2023 and are subject to change. The opinions expressed by the speakers do not necessarily represent the views of Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. to be reliable and are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections and forecasts. There is no guarantee that any of these views will come to pass. This material may not be representative of the experience of other individuals. 
Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the viewer. This material is not legal, tax or accounting advice. Please consult with a qualified professional for this type of advice. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Stock markets are volatile and equity values can decline significantly in response to adverse issuer, political, regulatory, market and economic conditions. Fixed income investments are affected by interest rate changes and the creditworthiness of issuers. As interest rates rise, the values of fixed income securities are likely to decrease. Specific companies and issuers are mentioned for educational purposes only and should not be deemed a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Any companies mentioned do not necessarily represent current or future holdings of any investment products. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. This material is prepared by Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. is not affiliated with Wingcap Financial. All trademarks or product names mentioned herein are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023 Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. All rights reserved.